Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. This is Annie here who is taking off her stick-together hat and putting on the Solidarity Breakfast hat. But, of course, the previous program was pre-produced. And today we're live. If you're listening to us later on on a podcast, hello from the distant past of Saturday morning. It's beautiful outside, absolutely beautiful. Uh, I read something somewhere on a Facebook message where someone said, What have all those birds got to be so happy about at five o'clock in the morning? Well, actually, the birds are beginning to start singing at about half past four uh, and five now because the uh, summer is coming. You can feel it. You can feel it in the air, spring, summer. It's all beginning to happen. Even though it's early, it's actually delicious out there. Today on this program, we're going to have a couple of things to present to you on your breakfast morning or in your later uh, life if you're going to podcast it. You can, of course, download uh, lots of wonderful, interesting 3CR programs by going to online and uh, downloading them from our podcast list. Now, we're going to be following up a a book launch, a book that uh, came out recently called um, A Handful of Sand. It's uh, written by Charlie Ward. It's his first book, but of course he's had a long history of oral history collection, as well as having written papers, significant papers in uh, various journals. Now, A Handful of Sand, of course, is about the uh, signing over of the lease uh, land to the Gurindji. And uh, you probably remember that this is an anniversary of the Wave Hill walk-off, a very important uh, event that happened uh, in uh, 67 uh, in relation to... It kicked off Aboriginal land rights, the whole discussion about land rights in the Australian white community, uh, let alone um, finally uh, getting a message across to mainstream Australia that uh, enough was enough. But anyway, this book, uh, A Handful of Sand, chronicles uh, the whole affair for the Gurindji right up to uh, 1986 when they actually got freehold, which is not... Uh, it's quite an, an eye-opening kind of book and it tells you an awful lot about how uh, activism actually plays out in the Australian context. So we're going to talk... I talked to Charlie w- uh, Ward about his book. Uh, it's uh, published by uh, the... Um, 
Monash University Press, and apparently it's already in its third uh, imprint. Uh, even before it was uh, launched, it was uh, it was out of print. <laughs> it was they were doing another print run. So it's obviously it's it's the most successful book that uh, Monash University Press has published, apparently. But anyway, it's it's a good read. Uh, I, he's a very good, uh, easy read uh, about something extremely significant. But we're going to talk to Charlie about his book. Later on, we're going to have a word with Liz Ross about the upcoming uh, alternative, uh, Socialist Alternative uh, Union Conference. It happens yearly. Got a fascinating program. It's going to be on October the 15th, one day of uh, absolutely luscious historical and present-day information about uh, workers' struggle. So we'll talk to Liz Ross about that. Of course, at about 8.20, we're going to have uh, Kevin Healy. This is the week that was. And later on, hopefully, we're going to catch up with uh, Jacob Critch, who's on his way to the uh, Closed Pine Gap uh, demonstrations, the uh, peace convergence starting 26th of September to the 2nd of October and Jacob is going to give us an update on his journey to the epicentre of the evil empire. On Sunday, the 9th of October, 3CR opens its doors to the community and invites you to come in and celebrate 40 years of radical radio. There'll be an awesome afternoon tea, roving musicians, special on-air broadcasts, and the opportunity to step into the studio and get behind the mic. There'll also be face painting for the kids, stalls, rolling station tours, and the chance to purchase, for the first time, 3CR 40th birthday T-shirt. Come in and enjoy your community radio station. 3CR Open Day, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Sunday the 9th of October, 12 to 4pm. See you all there. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on this beautiful, beautiful Saturday morning, I'll have to say. Delicious out there. Uh, We're going to go on straight ahead to our little chat with Charlie Ward. Now, Charlie lives in the Northern Territory, uh, so the chat, it's it's wonderful. Modern technology. You can go onto the phone, have a chat with a man who's in the Northern Territory who's written a great book called A Handful of Sand about a very important event in uh, modern Australian history. Now, I have managed to read the book, which is uh, a a bit of a mammoth effort, really, but it's actually very readable. Your book is very readable. And one of the things I want to compliment you on, because I do a lot of interviews myself and I'm interested in oral history, which is your background, right? Uh, Yes, yeah, yeah. One of the things that's most curious about this handful of sand is that you are able to, in a sort of deceptively simple way, take people onto the ground, you know, chronological, but you, you get a real sense of the characters as well as the events and the stresses. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. Oh, that's, that's good to hear. Yeah, I hadn't sort of thought of it that way, but um, I've certainly enjoyed interviewing a lot of people and I guess vicariously for me, you know, they've transported me to, to Wave Hill uh, in whatever period it was, so... Yeah, that's, that's good. I've been able to share that with the reader somehow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because 
really what we're we're looking at here is because uh, coming from uh, the you know being in Victoria and having been influenced by uh, the image of you know the Wave Hill walk off, even the visual that is conjured up by that that you know the Wave Hill walk off, it's just so descriptive. You don't understand really what it means and who are the players. So can you tell me a little bit about the dynamics? People may or may not know what those dynamics were because you've divided them up, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, there's, there's, there's broad kind of um, factions, I suppose. Um, at the time, at Waddy Creek, you had uh, the, the community um, which, which was getting on its feet and that was comprised mainly of people who'd walked off Wave Hill Station, um, almost all of them Gurindji people who were living there at, at Waddy Creek, but they'd been joined by uh, family members um, who, who'd been on other stations as well, but, but all from the region. Uh, and with them were a few non-Indigenous supporters and they'd been uh, brought to the community by virtue of groups like ABSCOL, the Aboriginal Scholarships Group, which was a university-based student group um, that was active in the 1950s and 1960s especially and tapered off in 1974, I think. Uh, and there were a few other non-Indigenous activists who, who'd come via other avenues, I suppose, personal connections or through the union movement um, in the Northern Territory. Uh, so so you, had, you had the Gurindji and their non-Indigenous live-in supporters. Uh, and by the time of the handover ceremony with Gough Whitlam, which was 1975, you had uh, Department of Aboriginal Affairs staff um, who'd been preceded by the welfare branch staff and I mean in both cases they were ostensibly um, there to support the indigenous people uh, but that was complicated with um, varying land rights policies and policies on Aboriginal rights and whatnot. Um, yeah, so there are a few of those bureaucrats and thrown into the mix you have the cattle men mostly, um, the, the pastoralists uh, and I'm sure all the listeners would know that the Wavehill cattle station was owned by the British Vestie Company um, back in those times and uh, they had you know, a number of people working on Wavehill station and they, they sent senior staff and travelling managers and whatnot in um, to work uh, to resolve the dispute with the Gurindji stockmen and, and work on the excision of the uh, pastoral lease that the Gurindji people were, were after. Well, you know, it's quite interesting in this book because you give it a lot of context. So you, at the beginning of the book, you actually... I hadn't realised that actually uh, Western European connection to that part of the land was actually incredibly late. So it was uh, 1879. Yeah, well, that, yeah, as far as the sort of first um, settlement, uh, you know, with the, the Nat Buchanan, the famous um, drover and explorer, uh, yeah, he, he was only there in the, in the late 1870s. 
70s, as you say, and, and then that sort of conflicted uh, frontier period kind of took from then through into the 1920s, you know, with, with sort of sporadic violence and shooting and all the rest of the horrible stuff that happened. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting because this whole case study is quite extraordinary because it gives everybody an impression of a, almost every element of power uh, as well as um, the differing flavours of Western uh, desire and the needs of the Aboriginal group. The, you, you know, it's got, it, it really encapsulates uh, modern Australian history, really, doesn't it? I sort of see it that way, you know. I think that's part of what makes the Gurindji history and the Wave Hill walk-off stuff so compelling for me. It's almost archetypal. You've got all the elements of the you know, European settlement and the kind of, you know, the British financial imperialism and the Indigenous people who've been on the land forever, you know. Um, and then the 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 modern state and, and how it, it sort of grapples with, with those factors or, or not. It's also like musical chairs too because what uh, what's so gripping about it is that uh, these people have a uh, sort of an implacable view of what they want which is uh, they want to go back to having land um, but it's tied to the modern economy that they've been brought into but also um, every time they make some uh, move in that direction, the power interests turn the tables on them. It, you know, it's like uh, it doesn't make any sense. The world is constantly not being made to make any sense. Yes, I, I was intrigued myself to to sort of see the way that that uh, cooperation between the the pastoral industry and the government worked. Yeah. And how how they're sort of, I mean, you know, I, I had Vesties people say to me, and these these were, in both cases, they're actually men that have passed away now, but so they were talking about the 1950s and 60s and, and saying, well, you know, it wasn't that bad because, um, but, but I encountered in the archives, you know, the, the sort of cooperation and collusion between the Vesti Company and the authorities in the welfare branch and the Northern Territory Administration, which, yeah, basically just made it extremely um, difficult for people to to move to move on and and survive and be fed or, or you know earn an income. Um, and of course, when they said that people could easily leave, they probably weren't thinking about the connection to country and the fact. You know, very few people would want to leave their country for any extended period of time. So I think it's easy to underestimate the isolation that of those places now when we, when we can drive for half a day or a day or something and go, go somewhere else. Yeah, incredibly um, isolating. Well, that's the thing. It's also the business about... Uh the power interests, uh, the politics of it, really. Uh, when they were given a lease, in actual fact, that wasn't freehold. And so they were being um, stitched up, really, 
because and they knew they were being stitched up. Not the Gurindji, but the people who were doing it knew that this was going to be a, a hurdle that they may or may not be able to to jump. And in fact, what was it? The figure sixty or so percent of uh, pastoral leases, not even Aboriginal ones, didn't actually achieve the uh, mm, the, mm. the level of. Uh, um, what do you call it? Oh, the covenants, meeting their covenants. Yes. Yeah, the conditions of their leases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, though, that the Whitlam government and DAA, the people involved, were, were genuine in believing that the Land Rights Act was, was about to be passed when they gave over the pastoral lease at the handback ceremony. I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and if, if it had been passed, um, which it was on the cusp of happening when the, the dismissal happened and Kerr's coup uh, it was a few months after the handover ceremony um, and if it had happened then presumably uh, the, the land rights claim would have gone through a lot quicker but uh, yes as we now know um, the Fraser government passed an altered version of the act in the following year and it was actually the late 1970s before the Gurindji even got to logic claim. So it was kind of ironic, really, because when uh, Fraser did pass his his version, the people who were... Uh, the uh, uh, Aboriginal people or Indigenous people who were on reserves were given freehold title while the Gurindji weren't. So <laughs> they had to wait until yeah. 1986. So well, quite yeah. interesting, that. Another kind of cruel, unfortunate blow, yeah, yeah. And there are, there are quite a few of them I, I was saddened to discover when I was writing the book. Well, the BTEC, the, the brucellosis and tuberculosis eradication campaign, was another one that had a huge impact on the Murramulla Cattle Company that the, the elders were passionate about. Well, you see, the thing that really um, I, I take, there's a whole range of things to take from your book. It's not just giving us a blow-by-blow blow description of what actually happened, but it also gives you a really clear idea of uh, how st certain conservative forces use their types of strategies and the pushback strategies that can alter um, a result. Yes, sir, sure. With the with the uh, Northern Territory self-government and the the rise of the Country Liberal Party, I think that that yeah, is a pretty striking example of, of those dynamics. Yeah, and also, uh, it's I mean, it's it's not a happy ending story really, except for the fact that uh, the uh, new generation of Gurindji uh, are, are tough and politically astute. Yeah, I reckon that's the case, and I I think that it's it's taken you know most of the lifetimes of the the, the current sort of generation of of leaders to kind of you know see the comings and goings of, of the white fellas and the managers and to you know really wrap their heads around the basics of, of governance you know of sort of financial governance and all the rest of it that comes with um, the the organisations and the the corporations etc that are part of a indigenous community and I mean in hindsight I think you know we can see that the the elders who who led the walk off you know really weren't prepared for that stuff and and they couldn't have been I mean it was just completely 
foreign, you know, to their experience. So yeah, I think it, it's yeah, it's taken quite a long time, and, and it's not over yet. But yeah, there's real real progress there, um, certainly in the last decade or so. The, uh, it's interesting too, just, just on one uh, level, you know, the business about education and uh, during Howard's period, uh, he cut funding to uh, language studies and uh, Aboriginal language studies. And uh, I've noticed that it's, there's a turnaround starting again, that uh, language is, uh, uh, try, you know, people are, are taking that mm. back which is, seems to me to be a really important issue. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally, totally agree with you. And, uh, I mean, that Kalkarinki and Dagaragu now, just in the last few years, a small language centre has, has started up, um, you know, largely the initiative of local people and some committed linguists. Uh, but, but in the 70s and 80s, in Kalkarinki and Dagaragu, it was... Uh, local language, Gurindji language, uh, wasn't really supported, I think you'd have to say, by the Department of Education, um, either federal or Northern Territory. Well, I think they had a a, a completely clear understanding of why they were doing that, because people lose identity if they don't have language. Yeah, yep, yep. I mean, it's one of the... The, the sort of eye-openers for me, I suppose, was, was realising that although um, in that period you, you had governments with uh, so-called self-determination or self-management policies for Indigenous people and Indigenous affairs, um, there were also big service-providing departments, uh, mainstream departments, active in all the Aboriginal communities in the NT, and they weren't necessarily beholden to the same principles. You know, so, so you had this sort of um, conflict, I guess, of certainly um, the Department of Aboriginal Affairs kind of working at cross-purposes to education or health in, in some cases. Well, and also I have to say that um, it's very illuminating to see how... Uh, uh, Government policy, uh, like, say, for example, the intervention, that type of stuff, how one thing leads to another in uh, building actually the uh, political and power imperatives of the dominant uh, group. Uh, that's what they were yeah. doing. And, and they wanting the rest of the country to go along because they believed they were doing a good thing you know, a morally good thing. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, well, the uh, I think the, the current political situation in the NT sort of uh, you know, shows that uh, that that sort of self-interest of, of the powerful political class can kind of, in the Northern Territories case, can can kind of unravel because there's you know insufficient checks and balances and accountability and. Uh, as you know, we've just seen the the uh, Giles government wipe itself out. Yes, well, that's right. And I'll tell you what, it's it's a very interesting to have read your book to get a clearer understanding of that dynamic. I'll have to say. Oh, thanks, Annie. Yeah, well, I mean, I just feel really. 
privileged, you know, that, and I've you know, totally enjoyed being able to, to sort of go into the archives and to, to interview so many people and, and place it all together myself. And I guess the, you know, luckily for me, um, it's sort of it's living history in the sense that there are still quite a lot of people around uh, who, who worked in that area and um, you can still go and talk to them about it. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope I've sort of brought that to, to life a bit. I think you have, and thanks for talking to me. Real pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, and that was uh, Charlie Ward. He's the writer of A Handful of Sand. It's published by Monash University Publishing, and uh, it's uh, in its third run, so it's uh, obviously hit a nerve. People do really want to understand what happened. It's a great book for understanding the ebb and flow of politics through that period, especially in relation to uh, Indigenous affairs. It's uh, really illuminating, I'll have to say. He's very, he's clever, cleverly done this whole thing. You're on 3CR with Solidarity Breakfast. I'll tell you all about 3CR. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. That's right, everything can change. Don't just sit there, be part of the solution. No fixed address. That uh, incredibly important, groundbreaking uh, Aboriginal band, Indigenous band, who uh, hit the stages in the 70s and 80s, is going to be playing live at the Le Monde Hotel on Thursday, the 29th of September. How about that? They uh, start at 9. You can book at... uh, the www.ticketebo, that's E-B-O, dot com dot A-U, forward slash, no fixed address, at Le Monde. That's right. That's the 29th of September at 9 o'clock. Let's hear a little bit of no fixed address. Yeah, the wonderful No Fixed Address. You're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. It's uh, 3CR 855 AM on your AM dial. (laughs) And uh, also, if you want to pick us up uh, online, we stream. Also, podcast. No No Fixed Address is going to be live at the Le Monde Hotel, Thursday the 29th of September. The Le Monde Hotel's on uh, Nicholson Street, Brunswick East. That's 223 Nicholson Street, Brunswick East. The date is the 29th of September. The time is 9 o'clock. You can uh, book www.ticketebo.com.au forward slash no fixed address at the Le Monde, at Le Monde, at the Le Monde. <laughs> there you go. And on the line, we've got uh, Liz Ross. As I promised, we're going to be talking about the upcoming union conference. G'day, Liz. How are you? Good. Good to talk to you. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm very impressed with the program that's coming up on October the 15th at Trades Hall. Uh, can you talk us through it a bit? Uh, I see that you're dividing up the uh, sessions into three types of uh, discussion. Yeah, um, well, basically it's a sort of history and activism conference, but also we want to 
bring together uh, both people who've had a lot of experience, but also people who've had you know no experience, you know, students and things like that, uh, who who want to learn about the you know magnificent history of of um, the working class in Australia, and also to people who want to come to grips with some of the big debates that have happened within the union or within the left more generally, uh, you know, things like the uh, syndicalism versus revolutionary socialism. So that's, that's one kind of, um, you know, theoretical... Yeah, conversation. Sort of, yes, yeah. And for the, for the people who've never, never been to a conference like this or who don't know very much about... We know why we why we go on about the working class. There's um, what we call Unions 101 stream, which is the first one to meet the modern Australian working class. So sort of look at exactly what you know what is the working class, who they are, all that kind of stuff. And then also we we think we need to know the enemy. So we need to know about the ruling class in Australia as well. So that's the kind they're, they're the sort of introductory type of sessions. Uh, we've got the history sessions, so we've got, you know, the magnificent 1986 nurses' strike, which should have once and for all um, crushed any idea that, that women can't be, you know, militant fighters. Uh, we've got, um, well, we're very excited to have uh, 3CR's own own sort of Dennis Evans, really, um, who has got an incredible history in in the union movement in Melbourne in particular, and he'll be talking about some of that history as well as his uh, his time in the Transport Workers Union when a reform group had won power in that that union. Um, we've also got migrant workers fighting back the Ford Broadmeadows strike of 1973, which is you know again inspirational and. Um, then we've got oh no what's the what's the other one oh yes it's not so much history well yeah it's sort of it's, it's not really history and, it's 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 actually happening isn't it yes yeah and and also um, we've got organising um, today kind of session which is white collar militants um, and you know that often we look at. It struggles and it sort of just look at blue collar workers, but white collar workers have a fantastic history in in Australia as well. So we've got four people who've been involved at different stages of their life in in white collar union militancy. So that that's a great session. We've also got what we call controversies, um, and so we've got uh, you know the union sort of ideas of. Um, joining the ALP and changing the ALP from within. Uh, we know that, that old the MUA, Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sorry. we know the MUA... <laughs> I'm only um, kidding. Has, yeah. <laughs> we know the MUA has adopted that as a, as a policy and so we, we're going to have a, a session talking about that. Um, we're also going to have... Um, my my session, which is called the robots are coming, and you know, are we looking at a kind of dystopian future, or are we going to look at something where, where you know, we we the robots are doing the work and we're we're enjoying the 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 life that that's provided from that, and you know, and other sort of aspect because really that's about how workers respond to to new technology, and I'll be going back. I'll be looking at both today, but also going back as far as the, the Luddites who have a, a completely unfair reputation as just being machine smashers. They're actually 
far more organised and far more interesting than um, than that. Now, that, that's and, interesting, isn't it? That uh, it's a classic case of uh, histories written by the so-called winners. So the absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, yes. That is a perfect example of how people need to uh, take a grip of uh, how the prevailing power interests uh, describe them. Yes, yes. And they actually, you know, despite all the stories, they actually did win um, some some uh, con- well, some serious concessions from, from the employers. So, um, And they scared and they, the shit you know, out of them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, some of them were sent over here. So so they've had an influence in Australia as well, not just from the example, but also from actually actually being here. A bit like the chart. Well, some of them well, like the Chartists, yeah. part of the Chartists and, and that. So they've got a they've got a magnificent history too. And then we we're going we're having a session about, you know, which is really about standing up for the United Firefighters Union um, against all the the lies and misrepresentations and everything that's gone on in this in the recent um yeah, that's uh, a yeah, that's dispute. A, yeah, I know what a brawl that's been turned into. It's turned into some sort of uh, mainstream media loving with oh, the li- yes. liberals. Yes, yes, and I've just recently been in the country and saw a, a range of, of stickers for the for the CFA. Um, but I mean, you know, it's a, it's an outrage really that that they're fighting against the idea that um, you can't have fully trained paid firefighters in suburbs like Frankston. I mean, really. Yeah, I know. It's ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, we're... But, we're hmm, go on. Yeah, sorry. But, so what, but one of the highlights for the whole day really is something that's, that's not against any other session, and that's um, we're going to have some, some of the stories from the recent Polar Fresh dispute where, you know, a bunch of workers stood up against um, that mighty sort of corporation Coles and won. So... Uh, that's going to be that's incredibly exciting too. Yeah, that's so. what I was going to say. That it's one of the fabulous things about this this uh, union day that you have uh, each year is this uh, blending in of actual events and actual uh, campaigns with the people mm. who have been part of it. It's it's really inspiring. I'll have to say. Oh yes, yeah. And what well, the other thing that we're doing too is because. So many people write off the working class and also in particular write off the working class in America. America is seen as a sort of, you know, the the graveyard of of unionism. But in fact, America's got quite a a fantastic history of union organising. And so we're looking at at, um, the interaction between one of the far left parties in America and the, uh, and workers in um, in the 1930s, but also today, the Chicago Teachers Union, which has been a, a real inspiration for some of the teachers here, um, will be having a session on them as well. So we're not just looking at Australia; we're looking around the world at different different sort of struggles, and um, you know, really pushing against the idea that the working class. Is not you know the the idea that the working class is is dead that they they can't change the world. Um, we're actually looking at what really happened in history, looking at what's really happening today, and putting the case that the working class really is the is a group of people who who can and will change society for the better. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Tell Liz, tell people how they can get a ticket. 
Oh, right. OK. Um, well, we've, I should say it's on uh, the 15th of October, Saturday the, the 15th from 9 o'clock at, at the Trades Hall. Um, you can go to redflag.org.au and right there on the front page is the the site, you know, the place for the you click on Union Conference. It's bright yellow um, jacket there, staring you in the face. So click on there, and it's got all the details there about how you can get a ticket. We've, we're selling tickets for twenty dollars and ten dollars, which is really you know unbelievably cheap. Yeah, it's great. it's wonderful value. I'll have to say. Yeah, and we're offering um, childcare. The other, at the end of the day, we're also going to have, uh, uh, you know, sort of a stand in solidarity with the um, CUB 55, assuming that they're still on strike. But if they're not, and they or not on strike, but shut out, if they if they've won, we'll be having a, 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 celebration, a, a celebration. Yeah. <laughs> so we're hoping for the celebration um, for for that, but. Uh, Yes, yeah, so, and as I said, childcare would be available for people, though they do need to let us know earlier rather than later so that we can, we can arrange it. But uh, it, all in all, it's, you know, it's just re- it's our third of these conferences. We've had wonderful turn-ups to, to others. People have been really inspired every time they've come. We will also be recording it, and I gather you will as well. Yeah, because... Uh, it- it's just always fascinating. Uh, in the past, uh, there's uh, you've had some great uh, stories of uh, history, uh, you know, struggles in history. Uh, it's also the struggles in the present day. Uh, they're just so compelling. Mm. They're just so compelling. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, um, you know, and basically saying, yes, the working class is still alive and kicking. Thanks very much for uh, getting up this morning. It's a beautiful day outside, isn't it? It's fabulous. Yes, yes. Ready to go out and fight another fight for another day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Pleasure. Okay. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers. And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. A new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or pick up your copy at the station. Thank you.
your radio radical? Well, it's not too late to donate to 3CR's 40th birthday radiothon and we still need your support. Call 94198377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy during our office hours to pay by cash, check or FPOS. Or simply post your check or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR, 40 years of radical radio. Common Ground Festival is back this November, featuring Frank Yammer, Dallas Frasca, Emily Waramara, The Deans, plus loads more. Complimenting the music makers on stage will be free workshops from the Group Work Institute, a social change unconference, mouth-watering food and nature in abundance. It's about working together to make the world a better place and having one heck of a good time along the way. So visit commongroundfestival.org.au for your tickets. A 3CR supporter. And you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Coming up soon is a community forum. Make Melbourne a Hanson Free Zone. There's going to be lots of speakers. You would have, of course, heard all about uh, Ms Hanson's maiden speech, which is uh, it's a bit like put, throwing a big rock in the middle of the pond and it's had endless ripples running around as people have been at one turning their heads in dismay at this woman's apparent lack of understanding of anything, really, (laughs) and her deep-seated sense of fear of anything that's not her or any of the people that she recognises as people. But anyway, there's been... It's inspired lots and lots and lots of pushback in regards to racist or anti-racist feeling in Australia. And so there's going to be a community forum, Make Melbourne a Hanson-Free Zone. There's going to be speakers... This is Tuesday the 27th of September, 6.30pm at the Victorian Trades Hall Council. If you don't know, it's 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Uh, it's uh, going to have, they're going to be speakers, Innaz uh, Janif, who's a Muslim activist from Casey Against Racism, Jack Lattimore, a Burpai man and journalist, writer, Jeff Sparrow, Guardian columnist and radio presenter, and Omar Mehri, unionist and campaigner against Islamophobia. That's Tuesday the 27th of September, 6.30pm. Make Melbourne a Hanson Free Zone. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. And very soon we're coming up to hearing the dulcet tones of Kevin Healy. But before we do, let's have a little bit of music. A 
weak solidarity bricky team listener when big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull exuded all his puffed up modesty to lecture the world on how to treat those seeking refuge from your invasions, from invasions generally, from dystopia resulting from invasions and from despotic governments who want to practice little punishments like execution advising the world to follow True Blue Aussie's example which is, Malcolm lectured, both principled and pragmatic. Principled in that it honours the hegemony of principle, of capital, and pragmatic in that it puts these unprincipled, queue-jumping, no-proper-papers, illegal boat people trying to exploit our innate humanity in their place, which happens to be their choice, their choice of idyllic Pacific holiday resorts. In fact, the word humanity kept dribbling from Malcolm's lips with almost every sentence, leaving us to ponder what our refugee policy might look like if it wasn't based on, wasn't the very essence of humanity. Our great leader also told the world in the one sentence we must have secure borders and that the world must reject protectionism. The movement of people must be restricted, the movement of capital unrestricted. There are still people influenced by evil forces like socialists, communists, long-haired greenies who believe in the heresy that the economy should serve people, when we must declare on behalf of the world that people are there or not there, if they happen to be illegal asylum seekers, people are there to serve capital, serve the economy, for only then can we all be better off. Sort of Malcolm's equivalent of the late rabid anti-communist B.A. Santa Maria, who would denounce evil communism for brainwashing dear little children, created in the image of the dear baby Jesus, and demand state aid for Catholic schools in the same breath without blushing. Malcolm, too, argued for securing borders from people but not from capital without blushing, but we can be sure True Blue Aussies blushed profusely, uncontrollably, when they showed vision of our delegation at the UN of the US of the UN of the world, and there was the conspicuous skull of our Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer who also delivered the occasional lecture to the world on protecting our borders with our renowned humanity. What national embarrassment? What must the rest of the world think we're like when that giant mind is turned loose on them? He probably thinks the word moron is some high praise in lots of languages said in whispers. Once on the humanitarian trail, they couldn't stop themselves. Malcolm also lectured Iran. It has a responsibility to take back the people who have fled its persecution on a voluntary or involuntary basis. Sure, if Iran heeds Malcolm's advice, they'll be queuing up, well, queue jumping up because they don't respect queues, to volunteer for the voluntary bit. True Blue Aussie's humanity knows no bounds, does it? But sadly, inhumanity still raised its ugly head, for at the very time Malcolm and Pete were boasting True Blue Aussie adopts world's best practice in dealing with illegal boat people, the bloody UN of Human Rights Committee declared True Blue Aussie a pariah, illegal itself, unprincipled, breaking international conventions, proving what that one-notion senator declared. The UN of is nothing but a long-haired commie front. 
On protecting capital, Malcolm also advised the long-haired commie lot in New York, free kick-to-capital trade agreements have lift- lifted billions out of poverty. Free profits agreements this week, good, good, lifting the world out of poverty, coal last week. Imagine how many billions, he did say billions, could be lifted out of poverty with free kick-to-capital trade in coal. Although it does beg the question, given the lifting the poor out of poverty achievements of free trade or free profit trade and coal combined, how come there are still billions living in poverty? Must be their own fault, their own sloth. Get off your bums. Speaking of long-haired commies, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, not Lord Rupert, nor his Wapping Sin, of course, no, no, hang in, finally addressed the Carlton United Against Workers 65% pay cut dispute. It attacked the picketers for their violence against workers who just want to go to work. We can't call them scabs, because as we reported, the courts have ruled that illegal, intimidatory. And there's nothing violent or intimidatory or illegal in sending workers home with 65% less pay if they make it home following the accompanying reduction in conditions. But Lord Rupert, in a fine example of investigative journalism, revealed the illegal strikers were thugs. Well, technically, they're not on strike because they've been sacked or, sorry, sadly let go and offered their jobs back at a bit of a discount. But the picket line must be illegal because picket lines must be illegal. It's axiomatic. And the State Minister for Caring Employers had shown how biased she was by speaking at an illegal picket rally rather than recognising the rights of the caring employer to sadly let go and happily re-employ at a 65 plus cuts to a few crippling conditions and then the whopping sin discovered evil commie union bosses from other evil unions had addressed the illegal picketers and encouraged them to keep protesting against the poor caring employer when Lord Rupert and therefore all of us because he speaks for all of us would expect a responsible good good union leader can't say union boss because that's pejorative responsible union leader like say the shopping the workers union would tell them to get back to work and accept the pay cut and the reduced conditions because that's what a good responsible union does we do it all the time And as for the 65% wage cut, sympathy for the affected workers that just maybe they had at least a little bit of right on their side? (laughs) No, no, the whopping sin couldn't see any problem with that because it pointed out the workers were still being offered an excessive wage, exorbitant wage, presumably lots more than the respectable law-abiding boardrooms incomes at News Very Limited who gasp at such caring employer magnanimity. Mentioned a couple of weeks ago, praise for the US of the UN of the US of the world's whistleblower protection providing huge rewards, five million in the case we quoted, for those who expose, particularly overseas companies, allowing the US of to find them to find them trillions. Imagine what Julian Assange and Edward Snowden must be worth, we speculated. Well, top advice for Edward from Bradley Moss. National Security Attorney in Washington, D.C., in a debate on Democracy Now! on this station Monday. 
OK, the national security laws don't allow the common good defence at trial. Makes sense when you draft laws protecting your illegality to disallow any loophole like a defence. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Guilty until proven guilty. But Edward can raise the common good defence, explain why he thought it important to expose government illegality in the plea stage after he has been found guilty. Inevitable, given you can presumably be charged with a second crime if you try to raise a defence. Uh, but Chelsea Manning got 35 years at that stage, it was pointed out. And here's where Bradley provided his encouraging legal advice for Edward. But Chelsea was allowed to explain her reasons, and the sentence was reduced from life, which the court and the prosecution wanted, to only 35 years. Without that plea on penalty, Chelsea could have got more than 35 years. That was 35 years without accounting for time already served, if I recall, but that invaluable legal advice should have Edward Snowden hitting home on the first plane, knowing he could be back on the streets by as early as 2051. Well, 52 or 53 at the latest, given time served doesn't count in these matters of critical national security, like don't let the right hand know what the right hand's doing. Still in the US of, giant US of bank, not so Wells Fargo, started life as the target for outlaws intent on robbing its stagecoaches. And good to see the big bank version has learned heaps about the robbery bit. In a touch of trouble recently for signing customers up to all sorts of services they had no idea they were being signed up to and charging them fees for services like the not signing yourself up, we had to do it for you fee. But the big supremo, John Stump on customers, said he had sadly let go hundreds of drones who had carried out the illegal questions. Uh, what prompted them to do that, a senator asked, because I ordered them to do it and threatened them with being sadly let go if they didn't. Uh, then why shouldn't you resign rather than clinging on to your obscene salary? That's the reason, he stated the obvious. Uh, uh, what? My obscene salary. Seriously, Stump on customers explained not so well needed him to come up with brilliantly profitable ideas, uh, such as... Such as signing up customers to services they have no idea we have signed them up to and hitting them with lovely, lovely exorbitant fees followed up by the late payment exorbitant fees. But they don't know you've signed them up. We inform them in an appropriate manner when the fees they owe us match the balance in their accounts. You've got to laugh when they front up and find they've got nothing left. Finally, headline in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review this week. The future of work is in thinking jobs. And I thought, yeah, I could sit round all day thinking about work. Good morning. Which base provides key information for every US drone strike, played a crucial role in Iraq and Afghanistan wars, as well as providing targeting and surveillance information for the Israeli Defence Force. Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. War is terrorism. It's the Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility, located just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs on Arundel Country, and this year marks 50 years of its inglorious existence. Come and join the closed Pine Gap protest near the gates of the base from September 26 to 30th. For all the details, head to closepinegap.org. Getting quick to book your early bird bus ticket from Melbourne for just $200 return.
That's closepinegap.org. See you there. Close Pine Gap is a 3CR supporter. Is terrorism. terrorism. And you are on 3CR, and on the phone we've got Jacob. G'day, Jacob. How are you? Okay, Andy. How are you, mate? Good. Now, Jacob, you're actually on the way, aren't you, to the close? No, the... no, I'm there. You're there. Tell us all about it. Oh, well, uh, we're just setting up camp. We're here a bit early. Um, we're meeting with some of the local people and... Um, Rained last night, rained in the desert. Beautiful, wildflowers are out blossoming, just uh, getting out of his tent or out of his swag as I am, um, as you ran this morning, and um, place is covered in wildflowers. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, it's, a, it's a beautiful place up here at the moment. Yeah. Just the, um, what we're seeing right now is the gathering of all the people. Um, We've got a, a bus crew just arrived, like a small mob in a truck just arrived from Malapindi. Um, we've got people here from all over the country already. And and what what's the uh, what are you intending to do? Like uh, this is uh, the you're going to meet each other, and then what's the intention? How, how's the demonstration going to develop? Because it happens over a couple of days, right? Monday, like we're not planned to start till Monday. It's just a um, my my friends and I got here a bit early to help set up the camp, you know, dig the toilets, set up the kitchen, and all that. But um, what we're doing is we're going to be coming up with so many different, let's hope, creative and colourful ways to um, hassle the base. I mean, I imagine there'll be blockades of the road, but I also imagine um, there'll be a whole lot of other colourful and, and uh, of actions of, you know, from from various various levels of legality. Now, this what is... What we want to do... Yeah, go what on. What we want to do is actually put it on the map, have people talking about it. Yeah, because this is a, a hugely significant thing, isn't it? Uh, Pine Gap and Australia's involvement in it. Well, it's... it's, it's it's the biggest CIA, US military communications base outside of the United States. All right. Um, it's got command, control, and communications capabilities for all the satellites uh, that the military use um, from Aotearoa all the way over to the Middle East. Now, every... Um, Every drone that's used, every community, all the com- and it's not just the drones. The drones are, of course, a major, very, very significant part of, of why we're opposed Pine Gap. But it's also the communications. Um, you know, the US can't afford to have a marine on every street corner across the Middle East. But what they have got is listening devices, communications, tracking devices, um, all telephones, all internet communications, all coming through Pine Gap all going straight to the United States where the information is processed and used in It's a huge thing. It's also interesting too that all that information that comes down to the uh, Australian uh, satellites and given over to the Americans, it's owned by the Americans because Pine Gap is, in, is America in Australia. Well, it is. It is. It's um, cool. <laughs> if it looks like dog shit 
feels like dog shit and it smells like dog shit, it's probably dog shit. <laughs> and you can say this, and you can say the same. If it looks like America and it smells like America and it feels like America, it's probably America. They reckon it's a joint facility, and half the staff working there are um, Australians. But it's run by it's run by the Americans. The Americans, ever since it's opened, the Americans have put in a commander of the post from the CIA, and all the companies that work there because, you know, this, we're living in a very corporatised subcontracting world at the moment. So we have companies there like Raytheon, etc. Um, they're all American companies. Um, it's yeah. funny you should say that, Jacob, because uh, years ago there was a, um, a, a workers' um, dispute. Uh, Australian workers were wanting to have parity with their American uh, counterparts in Pine Gap. But the snippet... People. Yeah, well, that's right. And the snippet in the newspaper said that they couldn't actually, the uh, commission couldn't actually hear their case because it was too secret. That's right. So, so it is so American that, um, as that, that's right. Australian courts, Australian commissions, cannot even hear industrial relation cases. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it's crazy, mate. It's it's absolutely crazy. We am. You know, when some people got into the got into the base five years ago, five people come up here. The Ploughshares Act came up, and, and they got arrested. They got charged under the Defence Special Undertaking. Yeah. And on appeal, the, the reason they won the appeal was because Pine Gap and the Australian government couldn't provide any documents about Pine Gap to say why to say why it was so dangerous what they were doing. They say. And, you know, the police and, the, and Pine Gap were saying, oh, what they were doing here is dangerous. And then um, the court and defence are saying, well, why is it dangerous? And I said, oh, we can't tell you. So, so they got let off. Yeah, so how many people have turned up, are you expecting to turn up? Uh, between one and 200. Oh, which is a significant amount because it's a pretty isolated place, isn't it? It's a pretty isolated place and it's a big, you know, it's... It's a big effort for activists from Melbourne, Sydney, and places to get here. You know, it's um, and and put aside a week. It's two, it's two days' drive at least, and um, and you know, putting aside a, a part of your week, and then who knows what's going to happen when when you get here. Um, so we're expecting a hundred, you know, one hundred and fifty, maybe two hundred people. There's already there's a, a sister camp just over the road, which has been set up by some Arendt elders and, and other other folks, the healing camp. That's already got close to 50 people there on the other side of the ridge, and there's going to be a lot of movement between the two camps. And um, it's just... Um, but, this is the, but the protest camp is where all the protests should be happening. So is there a police presence? Because uh, my experience of uh, going to other demonstrations in desert around refugees, the police yeah. uh, did helicopter mozzes across the top of people and through yeah. the night and stuff like that. Oh, look, um, we got here last night and um, they had, um, yesterday afternoon actually we got here and the police came out itself. And it was all very pale fellow, well met um, from the from the base, the Australian Federal Police. We set up camp today, and I reckon the coppers will come. Or the Kiwi cops will come out and have a yarn with us today. Yeah, right. 
Okay. Um, because, uh, yeah, all right. So... Uh, but they will be. Once, once it's all up and going... Once it's all up and going, the police will be here in force, no doubt. And is there an exclusion zone around the base? Yes, there's an exclusion zone which comes under the Defence Special Undertakings Act. Um, it goes for miles around the base. Where we are now is probably about five miles from the base. Yeah, it's the closest we could get. It's the closest we could get. But we are on we are on the only sealed road going in and out of the base. Yeah, right. So, so make sure you. Now, are there? Um, there's uh, alternative media there. Um, yeah, the alternative media uh, are arriving tomorrow, and we've got our own, our own media collective, which so um, close point gap is the Twitter handle. You want to keep looking at. Yep. And of course, the Facebook page is close point gap. Great. All right. Well, keep yourself uh, safe. When the action when the action start happening, we'll be posting all the videos and all the reports of what's going on. Great. All right. Well, keep yourself safe, Jacob, and thanks for getting up in the morning. Enjoy the uh, wildfires. Okay, Eddie. Take care, mate. Bye. And that was Jacob, who's up there at uh, Close Pine Gap, uh, near the Pine Gap uh, facility, which is basically America in Australia. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Now, to finish off the program, we've got a little chat that I had with uh, Dr. Michael Borgas from the CSIRO. Now, uh, I, CSIRO was uh, the workers have uh, been recently uh, asked to vote on their EBA. Uh, but uh, I was able to get a little bit more of a, a, um, a broader understanding of what uh, the difficulties that CFs IRO workers are having in regards to doing ground uh, doing the science work that they actually are there to do because of the new directions uh, uh, that uh, the federal government's been taking in terms of uh, innovation and uh, that kind of rhetoric uh, around uh, business. Uh, science as business as opposed to science as science. But anyway, so we'll have a little here about what Dr Michael Borgas, who's a delegate for the union, is of course a scientist, uh, and uh, hear what he's got to say about uh, uh, those kind of issues. The direction to you know, create a climate centre and to, to have outside influences um, Manipulating CSIRO is on the face of it something 
disagree with because we claim we're independent and we should let science uh, decide um, the best outcomes. But, you know, that's that's always a naive, simplistic view. Um, it's simply always been the case that CSIRO has had to deliver on, on things like public good research and, uh, and, and how you do it um, requires you to have collaborations and and work with outside people and keep a lot of people happy. So you can't simply run the organisation as a team CSIRO and ignore everyone else, all the other stakeholders. So, so you know, it's a, the real world is always more complex and, and difficult. And I think uh, we would we would claim that the the CSIRO executive hasn't haven't managed that uh, that well. Uh, and certainly the the climate centre is a useful tool to rebuild some of the relationships that they need uh, and it is tends to be focused down in Hobart because there are a number of other uh, government institutions down there that that do research in the environment that had their noses out of joint because of of the proposed uh, cutting of climate science so so we're quite happy to to deal with anything in a practical way that moves things forward um, you know and and we sort of not uh, we don't buy into, I guess, a lot of the you know, simplistic symbolism and, and uh, you know, management rhetoric and, and uh, RRR. We just need to be able to work collaboratively as scientists and, and generally speaking, the relationships with scientists, the scientists across any agency or into business are always very strong and good and, and the actual bedrock of, of all the good relationships uh, and uh, the interference of the management and going above that to government and other bureaucratic uh, controls is always a problem. But uh, but you know you have to deal with all of these things. So so you know, we are always advocating for the for the scientists in the system. Um, you know we're quite accepting and in fact we called for uh, the intervention of the minister to stop the cuts and to to rebalance the research portfolio so we were not at all uh, adverse to having uh, some of that ministerial direction and guidance and, and we are expecting a new statement of expectations which is a broad um, overarching view of what the government expects CSIRO to achieve and, and uh, the last one was from um, Minister McFarlane in early 2000. And that's um, quite a while ago. Fourteen, I believe. So yeah. it's out. It was out of date, and and if and it wasn't. I wouldn't agree that you could use that document to justify what had happened uh, this year. But uh, also, but he was new, he was a minister. He was a minister for industry, which is sort of telling, isn't it? Yeah. Well, CSIRO, I think you know, bounces between different ministries. Um, it, it. I. I think it's better to be in the. Uh, Department of Industry rather than the Department of Education, which is sometimes its home, uh, because it does have uh, you know, a major role in interacting and engaging uh, with industry, and that's even in the environmental sector and uh, how how we regulate our industries uh, and help uh, our industries you know meet environmental goals and targets is an important uh, role of CSIRO research as well. So, being an industry is uh, is is not uh, a, a problem if, if it's recognised you have to balance things out over all other portfolios. So, you know, whether or not uh, the, the 
know, Abbott cabinet had two siloed ministries and allowed a sort of war to develop between the Department of Environment and the Department of Industry. I mean, that's that's a, that's a management issue in a way. I mean, at the end of the day, you will be in some ministry or another, and and I guess my personal preference is is to deal with uh, uh, with industry, but. We, ha we having said that, we always argue that there's an important role for the chief scientist to try and balance research priorities across all of the portfolios, and this typically has to happen uh, with the with the chief scientist engaging with the prime minister to get that balance right, because CSIRO's you know, outputs influence virtually all portfolios of government. So it's no, it's fine. Uh, well, it's only a problem to be in a single department like the Department of Industry if it's if it's a siloed uh, environment where it puts its priorities ahead of everyone else's and doesn't seek to achieve a whole of government. And so, what you're saying is that you're waiting on a new ministerial direction. That's what we expect is going to come out shortly from from Minister Hunt, and uh, and you know we expect that would have some explicit things in it that try and prevent. Uh, a repeat of, uh, of what's happened this year, which is, uh, as I'll say again, it has been acknowledged by everyone that uh, even the current management that, you know, that some things were not quite done right. In fact, they adjusted uh, with a few extra words, admittedly, the strategic um, uh, direction of the organisation at the direction of the board, I think. So there are new words in, even in the strategic documents that the organisation has that gives more scope for doing science and public good uh, outcomes. So, uh, so uh, those are symbolic things, but they're important, and we expect the, the minister's statement of expectations will be uh, symbolic, but also important in how the long term uh, plays out for CSIRO. So, you don't think that the bal it, the balance? I mean, obviously change and streamlining and uh, making applications out of the science was the intention from, I'd say, almost the 1980s, really. Uh, it's Well, it's been preceding 90s into the early 2000s. Uh, and you don't think that uh, the balance away from science uh, has been ir irretrievably lost? Oh, no, and I think many of the staff... Um, have a have a you know, or they have a balanced portfolio of interest. So a lot of staff work closely with industry and expect to both raise raise funding from industry and also deliver outcomes for industry, uh, but based on science. So science is an underpinning, overarching thing, and it's not a it's not necessarily a zero sum game where we're doing these other things um, instead of science. I mean that happens I think when the funding is inadequate and. Uh, and you have, you know, these trade-offs and, and uh, you know, and, and you know, fights, I guess, internal fights. But, but, you know, I think the direction of the organisation to to support, you know, uh, Australian Australian people by helping our industries, our agriculture, uh, development of environment and management of environment, and you know, even moving into health, the health space a little bit, and. Uh, Food and nutrition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, these are all important practical outcomes which which science, you know, is fantastically suited to to deliver on. So, you know, I think the, the overall mission of CSIRO to to be focused in that way is is an important thing. But it doesn't have to do it at the exclusion of science. You know, 
know, I think we would argue that that it does it with the best science. It's, a, it's the optimal solution. Um, but that can only occur if you've got uh, you know, adequate funding if, and, and you allow people the scope to develop new science to solve important practical problems. Well, though, we're talking about things like uh, only having people, scientists having a one-year tenures and uh, people uh, one-year contracts and uh, uh, scientists increasingly having to do an awful lot of the administration work. I mean, that, that, that's actually quite uh, a difficult uh, practical issue for real science. Well, exactly, and it's not, that's not a, a way to optimise the organisation, but that's because... You know, funding hasn't kept up with uh, needs, and and overwhelmingly, uh, the the collective view of of the organisation that includes management and, and staff is to try and keep as many people working in science as possible, and that's led to often these abuses where where people start to take on more tasks, particularly administration, at the uh, you know it, not necessarily at the expense of doing science because people end up working very long hours and. And the workloads become bigger, and you know, and that gets to a critical point too, where it can no longer be sustained. And you know, I suspect we're there at the moment. And that's again, I'd say simply because of of the funding hasn't kept up with uh, with being able to run the organisation well. I don't think there's a deliberate strategy to uh, to to say the organisation would be better if each scientist you know spent you know 30 hours a week doing administration and then. And another 30 doing uh, research and activities, uh, or turning over people on a very short-term uh, cycle of you know, one-year contracts. I mean, that's you know, I'm not sure where that's come from. It's certainly in direct conflict with our enterprise agreement, where we've worked long and hard to get primarily the, the mode of employment being uh, indefinite employment. Now, that again is something that the management might disagree with because they see they see a market of people out there that they can exploit quite easily because overall science and technical people, we have more people than we have jobs in this country. And uh, But it's an inefficiency to churn through people with a high turnover rate of staff. Um, and um, you know, I'll just go back to you know my original proposition of you know it's ideal for the organisation to try and use the best science to solve important practical problems. And... You know, the trade-off there is that that will take a long time because uh, you need to give people time enough to develop good new science and it needs to be able to be aligned gradually over time to important practical outcomes. And when you can do that, I think you get the best value uh, for the investment in CSIRO. Certainly, uh, administrative models where, where you get rid of all support staff, force people because you know the scientists will, will try and do a science as much as they can at, at night at home you know, on weekends uh, and you can save money by administration but you know you... you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to all the w's.3cr.org.au